Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here. Uh, and I have my good friend Bill Padilla with me as well to talk about some spinoff of a robo-signing uh, situation and a judicial foreclosure case out of Florida with a great holding uh, from December of 2017. And one of the things I'll get into today is to uh, try to come up with some thoughts on applying this ruling in a non-judicial foreclosure context. As listeners know, I generally focus on West Coast trends on this uh, Neil Garfield show. On the other hand, this is a very uh, significant ruling and again, it would be uh, very useful for homeowners all around the country to be able to apply this ruling in a non-judicial foreclosure setting. And today is August 9th, 2018. I am broadcasting live from Southern California. And this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Uh, Neil and I thank you very much for any donations. You can donate directly on the blog at www.LivingLies.wordpress.com. Also, you can donate through calling Area code 951-451-1230. Now, the main topic for discussion today is going to be this legal case that comes out again uh, from South Florida, uh, the uh, State Judicial District out of Palm, Palm Beach County, Florida. And what's striking about this case is that even though there are three elements to the holding, uh, the case, by the way, is short, short name description, Wells Fargo Bank versus Riley. And I believe the case 
is either up on the blog now or will be uh, within a reasonable time frame. Uh, the case comes down to one major part of the holding, and it relates to the concept of unclean hands. Unclean hands is one of these theoretically simple but in practice complex legal principles. It applies theoretically only when there is a uh, a court of equity argument in a case, and that concept itself is a little complicated. I'll spend just a couple of minutes unpacking what that means. All courts in the contemporary American firmament, so to speak, are both legal courts, courts of law, and also courts of equity. Now, these courts used to be somewhat separated and sometimes completely separated many centuries ago, especially out of New England and states in the Deep South, which had active courts as long ago as the 1600s, the early 1700s. In any event, when you are in a position through a judicial foreclosure as the uh, ostensible creditor, when you are in a position to actually get a judgment against the homeowner and a victim from the property, you are asking for equitable relief. If your only remedy was money damages, then there would not necessarily, in fact, typically there would not be uh, an equitable piece to what you're doing on the plaintiff's side in a judicial foreclosure state. Whenever you ask for an injunction of some, time, of some type or when you ask for non-monetary relief, that is where you will almost always see, in a legal setting, you will almost always see equitable principles applying and a court of equity, so to speak, being part of the decision-making framework for your case. So yes, to get equitable relief of a foreclosure, which is how the statutory framework is set up all around the country, under the principle that your rights to property are sacrosanct and they should not be easily compromised. So that's where the equity uh, court and that's where the equity argument comes into play. And one of the holdings in this Riley case is that because the witness on the stand, the primary witness for, in this case, it was Wells Fargo. Uh, however, it was really Wells Fargo on behalf of a WAMU trust that then became a Chase trust. And Chase was the servicer in this case. So Chase is all at the middle of this and the end of it, and is really the principal uh, who's bringing this case to trial from the plaintiff's side. And then the defendant uh, was able to have effective counsel to cross-examine the main known robo-signer witness that Chase put forward. 
Now, robo-signing per se was not at the heart of the defense here. What was at the heart of the defense was an attack on the evidence that was being presented in the case. And these types of cases, before the foreclosure can go forward, typically there needs to be presented at trial a mortgage loan schedule. Well, here, the mortgage loan schedule, it was simply not available. And the original one, nevertheless, the plaintiff claimed to be presenting at trial. And one of the things the defense pointed out was that, look, you, you put forward this mortgage loan schedule. You claim that it's from the originating PSA all the way back to 2005. However, where, where, are the, where are the details in this mortgage loan schedule? Because what was presented at this trial was very heavily redacted. And the plaintiff's witness, it, it sounded like, was able to temporarily lead the court into thinking that, well, the reason for all these redactions, it's to protect the privacy of the, the homeowner borrower. And, of course, that's a very self-serving, convenient explanation. Uh, since the attorney on the defense side here was very effective, he was able to show that through his cross-examination of the witness, he was able to show that, indeed, a lot of these redactions had nothing to do with protecting privacy. And that was... The, the disconnect in this case, so to speak. That exposure exposed the dissembling and, and frankly, lying that was going on to try to get this mortgage loan schedule accepted into evidence. And so this is a really useful case for seeing, one, how trial evidence can make a huge difference, and two, that even and arguably especially in judicial foreclosure states, the evidence brought forward has to meet the four corners, so to speak, of verisimilitude, of veracity. And here the defense was savvy enough and organized enough to expose the problems here. I know you will have a lot to say about all of this, Bill. Why don't you uh, weigh in on this? And I know you've also had cases with similar notes, so to speak, not mortgage notes, but uh, themes. So uh, jump in here and let let the listeners know your take on this. Sure, Charles, I'd be happy to. Um, well, this is a, this is a fantastic case that falls under what I always call the WAMU Chase FDIC fact pattern because the original loan in this uh, was done by Washington Mutual, appears back in 05 and they come in with uh, an endorsement by the infamous Cynthia Riley, and they use the typical assignment uh, through the FDIC of ownership rights, beneficial rights, to, uh, to you know, chase assigning it essentially to itself and then assigning it uh, to the trust. And I do have some familiarity with this particular trust in another Florida case that I investigated a few years ago that I... Hopefully, I can uh, remind me to touch on a couple facts if we have enough time at the end. But um, what's 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 really great about this case is uh, 
I mean, we're beyond what's called uh, the hat trick, I suppose. You know, in hockey, if you score three goals in a game, um, uh, you're, it's called a hat trick. I don't know what you would call now if, you, if a guy goes on to score six, seven goals in a game. But um, <laughs> through all the years of my research on this issue, and we've talked about it many times on previous shows, I've written articles on it, I've been attacked by uh, Chase and the servicers uh, on my opinions over the years. But now every, everything that I've been talking about in my opinions and theories to date uh, that have been attacked by Chase are now being confirmed by the bank witnesses themselves. So in going back to not just this case, we now have, in re, in, within the last year, we have Chase witnesses admitting that there's no verifiable accounting to show any of the, the money trails on these loans. We have bank witnesses now admitting that Chase is placing the endorsements upon the notes after the receivership. We now have evidence by admission here in this case uh, where this witness who works for Chase and actually worked for Washington Mutual back in the day. So she's been there for a long time, even through the transition, and she's a, a research analyst. So uh, apparently she's a witness here because she has personal knowledge of WAMU's procedures and so on moving into Chase. Well, she admits here that the assignments – uh, the assignment in this particular case is materially false, that it's uh, speaking to a transaction that never happened. And that's, you know, that's what we're saying in virtually all of these WAMU securitized loans, that the assignments that Chase has been utilizing through the FDIC, they are all fraudulent. Um, and here now we have this amazing and startling admission that the, their own witness says, yes, it's materially false. Um, and, you know, in this order, you know, as the court spells it out, uh, this Darlene Marcotte is the witness name. The court acknowledges that she had testified in many trials with similar mortgage assignments where they were introduced at trial as evidence, okay? Well, I'm curious. Uh, obviously, she's not Chase's only witness. But this is the standard operating procedure. This is the standard uh, way in which they testify in, you know, literally. I, I, there's thousands, tens of thousands of these cases, I'm sure, that have occurred over the last uh, almost decade now of these foreclosures using these uh, materially false uh, statements and documents to procure their judgments or their non-judicial foreclosures or to carry them out. Um, and so that's a startling admission. And now we even go further. We have this witness admitting that the uh, note in the case is not a negotiable instrument. I mean, she goes as far and talks to how there are um, uh, the details surrounding the note and why it is not a negotiable instrument. Now, we all know, and it's a fact, that Washington Mutual was doing um, a tremendous amount of option arm uh, pick-a-pay-type loans with negative amortization features leading up until the crash. And in virtually all of these cases, whether judicial or non-judicial, if, if it's ever contested non-judicially, I should say, um, they come in with, with the note and the, you know, the blank endorsement uh, claiming that it's a negotiable instrument, plain and simple. We're holding the note. We're entitled to enforce it. Well, here, their own witness, uh, I mean, we've had experts and people coming into court testifying as experts as to why they're not uh, negotiable instruments. Well, now we have their uh, research analyst uh, admitting to that, okay? And so in this particular case, um, 
when they talk about also the uh, the unclean hands portion about the endorsements on the notes is that there was a court order in this case for them to produce records from the custodian as to the uh, the facts surrounding the endorsements when they were put on the note by whom all of that information was ordered by the court to be produced and they flat out ignored it and the court admonishes them for that they are not i mean they they tear them apart for that in this ruling that the court even says the court cannot make a finding whether plaintiff had standing because of plaintiff's unclean hands in presenting its evidence of standing and their failure to comply with the court order well uh the court recognizes here in this order that chase does have this information in their custody and control and i've been saying that too it's in the servicing screenshots the very specific shots that i've been talking about that i've shown examples of and it's very clear uh in those uh files uh as to when these endorsements are being placed on the notes and so here uh as in many many cases they simply um stonewall discovery they won't produce it and even when the court demands through a, a compel motion they're still not producing it um, and it's very telling um, so we know as i said a moment ago from the uh, i think it was the schieffer case in the bankruptcy arkansas case where the bank's witness admitted that chase put the endorsement on after the fact i mean it's becoming just you know crystal clear what their method of operation is and, and what's going on here um, but in the beginning of this, I think it's real interesting when he talks about the loan schedule, and you were touching upon this uh, at the beginning of the show. First of all, I don't know personally how any loan schedule is ever admitted into evidence um, in any court case whatsoever. Um, these loan schedules <clears throat> are completely void of any specific information that you could trace to anybody they don't have an address they don't have borrower names they don't have matching loan numbers they have all they are is data and characteristics you know it would it would sort of be like if if you were looking for a murder suspect and the suspect was a caucasian male you know five foot four living in san diego in this particular area of town it would basically you know be like bringing a lineup of people in and, and convicting based on you know picking out one guy out of the lineup that matches that description oh well he's five four he's caucasian he's from the zip that must be him it's the same thing here uh with these loan schedules and i and i quote and i talk about uh an abstract that was written by a study that was done on this uh trust data and uh i've talked about it in a, in a past show or whatnot it was uh, uh an abstract titled u.s residential mortgage transfer systems a data management crisis by john hunt and this study goes in and and states and i'm just going to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from this about the origination data and the renic data reporting as to the origination data it says nearly always the loan IDs are changed as the loans travel through the mortgage supply chain, making it all but impossible to track a unique loan through the supply chain from its originators via its servicers to its securitized pool. And then when they talk about the remic data reporting, as previously discussed, both prior to the crisis and currently, 
there is no loan level information available for the mortgage collateral held as assets in the REMIC SPVs at the date of the issuance of the prospectus supplement or the date of the initial offering of the certificates. Virtually, again, and even by Chase's own admission in the Prudian case we've discussed, they cannot trace any of these loans through loan schedules. They just It's impossible. And there just isn't anybody who can come in with personal knowledge to even attest to that data and how it could part- how it could you know be tied to any one specific borrower there's just a complete disconnect so this whole thing on the loan schedules when they march in and they bring in these heavily redacted uh documents like they did here in the case i mean the court clearly called them out on the rules of evidence and just you know um hammered them on that well this is this is a textbook case of what goes on in every one of these proceedings that I've been involved in. It's only here the court is using the rules of evidence and they're applying it and they're calling them out on each and every one of these issues. Um, I also like, and I, I think if you probably saw that in the, in the order, that the judge says, listen, it's, there's, it's a felony in, 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 uh, in Florida. It's a felony to record materially false documents in the record as of 2013. So he's, he's putting everybody on notice that, that, that you know, this is a crime. So it's pretty serious stuff. That's California and, and many other jurisdictions as well. That's a very important point. Yeah. So, um, so now if, if we add up based on the admissions now that we have of record, at that oh and and one of the other key admissions is here the witness is stating if that loan was securitized which the plaintiff it's in a plaintiff trust back at 2005 series trust she says and this is why the assignments are materially false is that ownership chase could never claim ownership of that loan it's virtually impossible and that loan did not go through the fdic okay so when we talk about the investor codes in past episodes with the AO1 and some of the codes that are in the servicing system screenshots, we can see that the subsidiaries, the WAMU subsidiaries, were selling and securitizing these things to private investors. And in the uh, Fox case where they stipulated finally that AO1 was indeed the subsidiary and not bank-owned, um, in that admission, a few uh, uh, paragraphs down in that stipulation, they admit the loan, if it was securitized, did not go through the FDIC. Well, that's virtually every single one of these loans that one was securitized. None of them went through the FDIC, and that's been my point and my theory and my opinions based on all this evidence since day one, that all of these assignments – uh, with no schedule of assets going through the, the purchase and assumption agreement being attached to that, and with the PAA uh, stating that the assets of the subsidiaries were not a part of the uh, receivership, so on and so forth, um, every one of these assignments is materially false. Every single one of them. Uh, where you know, Chase is saying, you know, we own it when there's evidence that Juan was securitized it. So, um, this is a great case. I mean, it really spells it out, and I and I think we're getting so close now that we, it's not even uh, theory anymore. It's nothing we have to prove anymore. I think each and every one of these key elements and areas are now admitted to by their own witnesses. 
Um, and it's just now a culmination, and that's what I've assembled. I've put this information uh, from all the cases I've worked and all of this information I've pulled together, and I can spell out very clear and concise that um, this is exactly what's going on and it's now being admitted to. Uh, that's excellent information. I mean, that's something that uh, I think we can explore in more detail in a future show. One aspect I'd like to, to get to in our remaining time is, is the holding related to the equitable relief and related to the principle of unclean hands? And before I, I get into some of the, uh, the inquiry as to how we can apply this in a non-judicial foreclosure context, I will say that the way this was applied here and could certainly be applied in other judicial foreclosure cases is the holding here actually puts clearly that, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll read this portion of the holding that's quite relevant here. It's therefore, even if plaintiff had standing to for, even if plaintiff had standing to foreclose, a meritorious claim, in other words, you see in parentheses. Plaintiff would be denied the equitable relief of foreclosure upon a finding that plaintiff took actions in pursuing this foreclosure that reasonable and honest men would condemn. Oh, there's some old school language for you there. Uh, again, applying this more broadly, what's compelling about this is it's, it's literally saying, okay, plaintiff, you come into court, even if you can somehow otherwise prove that you have standing and you have, quote, unquote, ownership and control of the noted issue here, and you, you can present hypothetically evidence for that, whether it's through something like a mortgage loan schedule, that if you present evidence that essentially is fraudulent as here that was presented through dissembling at best, arguably perjury, but I won't get into that as a legal principle here. Clearly the court found that the testimony was not valid. Uh, the testimony at issue was deficient. More importantly, the court found that the testimony at issue was, was essentially uh, a kind of fraud and as a result of that applied the clean hands, the unclean hands principle, which again is essentially saying that by definition when you're foreclosing on somebody all around the country, you are asking for equitable relief to be able to take their property. Again, that's completely separate from any potential monetary damages. And in asking for equitable relief, which, again, by necessity you must when foreclosing on somebody in a judicial foreclosure context, when asking for equitable relief, you must do equity to receive equity. That's the principle. And that's the unclean hands principle is saying where you don't do equity, then you will not receive equity. So where, in essence, you put forward a witness who presents 
again, we'll call it even just assembling testimony, which goes outside of the truth and tries to get something admitted into evidence in an underhanded way. Where that happens as here and it's exposed, again, it was only exposed through cross-examination and it was only exposed through continued cross-examination to take down what turned out to be a very self-serving line of argument on the part of the witness. Yeah, well, let me, let me chime in one quick thing here is that the court said that the failure to comply with the order interfered with the orderly administration of justice. So when you have stonewalling and discovery and they fail to comply with discovery demands, they're interfering with, with the orderly administration of justice. And the court said, listen, I ordered you to produce this, and they didn't. And, it's this, and that's what they're doing in every case. Because if they produce yeah, exactly. this, evidence, it's going to... I don't mean to cut you off. I don't mean yeah. to cut you off, Phil, but we're, we're at the end of our show. And I will take up this issue again of how to apply today's ruling to non-judicial foreclosure cases. And Neil will be back next week. I'm sure Bill will be back shortly as well. And we will see you in a future show. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.